right. After so many tries, after technical problems, it's like the universe uh, wanted to put some obstacles in, in the way of this conversation, but we don't uh, back down. Uh, this is the first episode of the Polymath Experience, and I welcome Tara. And I've said this multiple times already, but I'll say it again because she deserves it. Uh, definitely one of my favorite people I've met in this space in the past uh, year or so. It's just a pleasure and an honor to have you as my first guest. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. All right. Um, the question I wanted to ask you to, to lead into this conversation was, uh, was having this conversation with a few friends. And like I said already, uh, we're, we got to the fact that, yeah, this, this space is still very niche. It's still uh, very much made up of uh, misfits who didn't quite maybe not fit in, but appreciate uh, this other society, let's call it mainstream, and kind of wanted to build their own. But when I look at you from a pretty objective perspective, like Harvard grad, and then had a very cool and very respectable job in a, in a, in traditional finance. And, and then now, even if we look at your, your investors, you have some of the biggest names, not just in this space, but in, in the world. So how does that resonate with you? How does like, do you resonate with being a misfit at all? How'd you end up here? Like, tell me everything. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think I present as very mainstream and uh, normie, and I think I am a bit of a misfit. Uh, growing up, I was always the kid who just wanted to figure out how the world works, who was reading a ton, who loved to travel. Um, the most normal thing I did was I was really into sports, <laughs> um, but outside of that, I was pretty much an oddball, and what attracted me to this space is I just think that blockchain is going to fundamentally alter the way the world works and what is possible. And right now is the time when builders are really able to shape that future and figure out what that can look like, what it can mean, um, who it can benefit. And so I wanted to be part of that transition. I didn't want to be on the sidelines. I think that Web 2 is it's so known and web three is so unknown and that's what makes it exciting to yeah, me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. What's really cool is that I, I think web two did very well. Uh, there's, there's a lot of problems, but there are a lot of problems with any type of innovation and any type of growth. And I, I was, I remember a few years back, I was very into, into tech and, and I wanted to, understand what platforms worked and how they work and, and, and how they, and what they did. And what I really appreciated was the efficiency that they brought to the table. It's like, I, I'm not a big fan of Amazon as a, as a company per se, but I, at being an entrepreneur, I can't but respect like the efficiency. They, they, they connect hundreds of millions, if not billions of people and, and through a value chain that is just so, so efficient. And now we've kind of reached the point where we have to to do something else and i think that i do think that web3 is 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 part of the answer because we take this efficiency and we decentralize those systems to make sure that we don't necessarily uh abuse the people who make it up anymore and 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 use to serve it and when i look at i mean i i 
I, I know I knew some about co-create and then you told me that uh, you guys uh, made big changes, but um, you embrace Web3, you understand it more than a lot of people that I've that I've seen coming, having uh, similarly uh, a similar background to yours. Um, so how do you view that? How do you view taking what's what already works, what's already been done very well and and going that step further into, all right, let's not just let's go beyond the efficiency. Yeah, I really like the example of Amazon that you brought up, actually. Packy McCormick, who I think so highly of, he wrote um, an, a post a few months back about if Amazon were being started today, how and whether they would use Web3 technology. And in the early days of a new technology, the people that are attracted to it are the people who really love technology, who just think this is cool because the actual experience that a new technology presents in the early days is pretty subpar. <laughs> It's actually not better than the existing product services solutions. And so you've got to geek out on what is possible because what is is not that exciting yet. And in the case of Amazon, Packy made the argument that They were never trying to be an internet or technology business. They were trying to harness the power of the internet in order to deliver a better service um, and a better experience. And that's what resonates most with me. While I appreciate and like to go into the details of how things work, for me, it's always about what does it mean for people? And what I think is so exciting about Web3 is it's created the possibility for an internet of value as some have said, that's orchestrated with tokens and where the ownership and the value capture um, and the value creation can be more distributed. And I think that's really exciting. And although we still have a long way to go to realize its full potential, people are starting to see why distributed systems and distributed value creation and capture and ownership matters when some of the platforms that they interact with change their rules or change their algorithms, or de-platform someone, or make it so that you aren't able to monetize or get in front of the audience in the same way that you were from uh, the day before. And so that's where I think there's some level of discomfort with how Web2 works, even if people don't have the words to describe why. And if you say, well, you can actually own your audience, Um, you can own all your content and you can bring it with you to various platforms. That's where people start to realize, oh, this could be meaningful for me. It's not just that it's cool tech. It actually means something that matters to me. And that's what we're trying to deliver at CoCreate. That's so cool. Yeah, the, the notion of ownership is super important. And, and you, you brought up the example of uh, people owning their, their audience. Um, I, I, I'd like to... I think the question is very important and interesting when it comes to, because I know that one of the things that you did want to do, and maybe you're going to say that you've changed that, uh, uh, that part, but I, I, I doubt it. Um, you want to take brands and bring them into, into Web3. And so far, what a lot of brands and companies uh, that are not Web3 native have done has been to um, leverage uh tokens, uh, fungibles or uh, fungible or not fun fungible and uh, extract value and use them as a marketing stunt in order to uh, say, hey, we're Web3, we're innovative. How do you convince a traditional company, a traditional brand 
that it's not enough to just sell something to their audience, but also to truly put in their hands something that means, all right, uh, from now on, we're sharing ownership. It means that this network doesn't just belong to us anymore. It also belongs to the people who own these. How how does that work in, in your experience? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually don't think that you can convince a brand um, of anything that they don't already believe. Uh, and so my approach is to find those partners, whether those are Web3 native organizations or, and they generally don't like being called Web2 organizations, but I would say established entities uh, that are looking, that are innovative um, and see where the world is going and what is possible and are excited about the potential. And we want to partner with them. I don't really want to be the entity that is educating and trying to proselytize why you should give up certain areas of control. From the brands that we have partnered with already, what excites them is a few things. One, they recognize that consumers, and I'll use consumers instead of community members, but consumers, they expect more from the brands that they interact with and they wanna have a more personalized experience, but they also wanna have more, more voice in what is going to happen. And brands realize that they need to be able to engage with consumers more. And so the idea of utilizing, in our case, helping brands launch tokenized loyalty and reward programs is it does open up the ability for consumers to own their loyalty in a way that wasn't possible um, because these tokens don't have to be used only within a closed or walled garden specific to a brand's ecosystem. They can actually be used to open up cross-brand partnerships um, since these tokens live on a blockchain and Therefore, you don't need to build an API between one brand's loyalty system and another. Um, that's reading between two proprietary data systems. Um, and so consumers love the idea of being able to own their loyalty. I think brands love the, the idea of being closer to their audience, but also using that those tokens, that loyalty as a way to do better surveys, right? Like, and get the consumers buy-in into some of the brand's decisions. Like our next... Uh, launch? Should it be, should we be following this color palette or that one? Or should we have this flavor or that flavor? It doesn't have to be these really weighty governance decisions. Tokens can be used for voting as a way to get voice from an audience and say, what do you care about the most? We're considering this. Which way should we go? And we, we structured what the options were, right? So we're not saying, what do you want? And you can put in anything, but we structured the options. Which ones do you care about? And from the consumer standpoint, now they get something that from one day to the next, the brand can't unilaterally decide, you know what, those tokens, they really aren't yours. Um, those That loyalty you quote unquote earned actually isn't yours. And I think that there are brands who are excited about this evolution, excited about allowing their customers, their community, those consumers to have more voice and say in how things develop. And those are the ones that we want to partner with. Um and we're seeing that a lot of brands are already open to that. We've had brands like really established, large name, luxury brands say that they want to have a DAO. <laughs> so it's it's out there like this is this is happening and we just want to be the enabler that supports that evolution. That's so that's so cool. I, I It's awesome that you bring up DAOs because um, what I love about what you're saying and what you're doing is that 
you don't come at it from a maxi perspective of we need to do 100% Web3, we need to do DAOs need to be 100% decentralized and autonomous. Um, and, and I speak from like firsthand experience because building JPEG, uh, JPEG Vault, we, we had this, all right, what do we do? How far do we go in decentralization? And, and I don't think we're here to, I, I don't think the businesses that succeed the most in the end are the ones that uh, respect the ethos or the narrative that they're building in the most. It's, it's just not how it works. The, the companies and the brands that succeed are the ones that see the trend, the wave, they catch it and, and they, they build something cool. And right now, the wave, the trend is, uh, you, you said that brands don't want to maybe give up too much control. And, and I, and I, I agree. And I don't think it's about relinquishing or giving up control. I think it's about just sharing it. Hey, uh, we actually care about this relationship and we care about your, uh, what you have to say. And so, um, we're going to let you in if you, you're right in saying uh, consumer because in the end that's uh, like brand to consumer relationship that we want to, that we want to focus on. So show us that you actually care about your, uh, about our product and you show that by consuming. And so the, the power consumers, the power users will have a higher voice, uh, a more important voice. And yeah, I, I, I love that. I find it so interesting. Can you drop names? Um, so we have publicly announced that we're partnering with Atari. Um, and so that's what I can say um, officially. We also just did a launch for a large media brand in the um, sports and entertainment space um, where they are launching a new token come January. And they used us to support um, to, to do their token launch. And it's a loyalty token where if you watch programs and then answer trivia questions about those programs that they offer, you can earn the token that is then able to be redeemed within their marketplace of goods and services. And what was most, and this is like a massive media conglomerate. Um, and what was most exciting to them was the ability for their token to be used across various merchants where they said, well, what if our token could be used at a, a retailer where for a given week, the people who have earned our loyalty token could go to XYZ retailer, let's say Lululemon, and use their the token there as a way to either get discounts or get some amount of store credit. Um, but the benefit here is that for so many brands, they have a ton of marketing spend that's going into acquisition and retention. And that is a lot of time going to Google, Facebook, and these other intermediaries that actually isn't adding a ton of value. But if brands can partner directly with one another and say, hey, you know what? My audience is a target audience for you and we're non-competitive businesses. So maybe for a week, we'll do a promotion where each of our tokens can be used at the other as a way to cross-pollinate. And we'll acquire customers that way, but we'll also add value to our existing customers because what they did with us can now be redeemed elsewhere. And so there's more value that we're creating for our existing community and user base. And that was what was so uh, enlightening. I would say encouraging to me was to say this massive media company is thinking about open loyalty programs that's in a way crazy. that's incredibly innovative. It blows and, my mind. Yeah. 
I don't think they're the only ones either. Like we're, we're hearing this a lot um, where too much, and really this is why DeFi came about, right? Is it started decentralized finance as a way to reduce the fees that were going to intermediaries who were seen as rent seeking or just inefficient and saying, is there a way for two counterparties to create trust within one another because intermediaries in finance have primarily been there in order to solve the trust issue. Well, blockchains and smart contracts can solve that trust issue and they can reduce the requirement for an intermediary. And therefore all of that capture that was going to the intermediary can now be split among those two direct counterparts. Similar thing can be said for brands. There have been so many intermediaries that have stood between them and a target audience or their own audience. And now they can partner directly in the case of tokenized loyalty programs. And it doesn't mean giving up all control doesn't mean launching a token that's is at risk of being a security and that can be bought and sold and that has a market price and is incredibly speculative. It can be a token that can be earned and redeemed where the brand controls the places it's used, but it's a much more open network than saying I get miles. I can only redeem it at this airline. Yeah, absolutely. And there's more, there's more transparency as well. It's, it, it's what gives things value. The, the, if, if, if you don't know how many consumers are being, uh, are being rewarded, if you don't know how much they're being rewarded, if you can't really compare yourself to the others, others, you, yeah, you miss, you miss, uh, you miss something. What I, what I found, what I find extremely cool is that this whole interoperability thing that is, for me, it's just, it's a given I've, I've seen it. I've one of the, one of the things that I am the most into right now when it comes to, so we're, we're focused a lot on NFT. So that's where, that's where a lot of my attention goes. And one of the things that I look for is can this, um, uh, digital products be connected to other ecosystems because the more ecosystems it's connect it's connected to the more uh intrinsic value it has it's the like the network effect a a vision a version of the network effect that i hadn't uh, seen before and it i'm i'm not even exaggerating when i say that it blows my mind literally not really really uh it blows my mind that such big brands such established brands that don't technically need to do that would kind of embrace that part of what me, a Web3 native, care about so much, uh, so naturally. Just like uh, those brands coming to you and saying, hey, uh, let's do a DAO. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And it, it leads me to a point where, um, where I think you were, you were very smart, you and the team were very smart, is that you're not, uh, you're you care about Web3 personally. I've seen it. I've seen the passion. I've, I've heard the passion in your voice. I've seen it on your face. And so for people who care so much like us, and in that way, you're much more smarter than me, it's easy to go to the people who we want to sell on and tell them, hey, you should do it that way. Like, that's the way you should be doing it. And, and you're doing the smart approach of uh, finding the people that resonate with uh, some of it. And you're not some people might call it like uh, web 2.5 or something. And I don't really care about that. I, I don't think it's like, yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing because you're probably when I, when I was starting to think about this conversation, I, I, I about an intro, I thought about saying uh, this woman's going to 
bring in millions and millions of people into Web3. And I, th- I genuinely think so, so much because you're, yeah, you're, you're doing it, like embracing, uh, embracing that wave. No, I really appreciate that. I think, um, you know, there's this saying we all have in Web3 that, oh, when we went down the rabbit hole and it's because it's a really deep hole and it, it takes really a while to get down ending. it. Yeah. Like, and I remember when I first came across the concept of self-custodial wallets and I could not, I consider myself an intelligent person. It took me a long time to really understand it and I had to experience it. I had to do the login with a wallet where I didn't have an account. And then I had to take that wallet somewhere else and plug it into another front end app and be like, oh, now I get it. But when someone spoke it to me, when they tried to explain it to me, I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Why do I want to take on all of this burden of trying to figure this out? And I don't think that we can expect that everyone will go, quote unquote, down the rabbit hole. I think we need to expect that. If this is if Web three is to reach its potential, it's because it be, it requires so much less of individuals in order to take part, and that they're simply in these experiences, they start to see the benefits before we require of them, and maybe we never require of them the same level of time and detail that the Web three natives have had to go through, right? Because um, there are some people for whom self custodial wallets and being their own bank that will never resonate for them. But if you say, you know what, you can own your in-game assets, you can you can spend time in a game and then that the things that you've earned in that game are yours. And if you'd ever wanted to sell them, you could. So all this time and money you're spending, that's yours. And you can bring it with you to another game or you can own your loyalty points. And if you actually wanted to sell them or spend them somewhere else, you could. Like that resonates because that actually means something. Um, to people in their day-to-day lives. And that's what I'm excited about. I feel like while I I can geek out on um, the tech myself, I don't want to require that, that of everyone because that just means that we will always be serving a small cohort. I saw a tweet a few months back and it was, you know, for Web3 to actually succeed, we've got to get beyond selling to the same 500,000 people over and over and over Absolutely. again. And that's Absolutely. true. And we need to get away from the tech. We need to get away from the, Hey, here's a cool NFT or here's, uh, here's a token. And you're saying it perfectly. Um, people don't really care that they, what they have. You, you don't, I'm, I'm just rehashing a a conversation that I saw on Twitter, I think as well uh, of like, when you go on, on Instagram, you don't care that it's written react or, or, uh, when you use a web app, you don't, care what, what it's made of. You just care that it's useful and that it serves a purpose. And it's exactly what you're saying. Uh, as long as people own things and have the feeling that they own them and understand that they own them, it doesn't really matter how it works. But that's a really interesting question. So since you're going to address probably millions of people and that you do want to give them ownership, how are you addressing the whole uh, self-custodial uh, wallet thing? Yeah, it's not an easy thing. And I think this is true also for similar to how we don't ask, okay, who's your domain provider or who's your web hosting service anymore? And used to be that those were really critical decisions because they like were representative of very different experiences. Um, Eventually, we won't ask what blockchain are you on, 
right? Like it'll, that won't be a topic of conversation because there will be more interoperability. Um, the way that we're approaching the wallet issue is we want to be able to support people that already have their own wallets um, and to enable them to log in. So really, I would call that the super user, the Web3 native. But if you don't, we want to enable you to sign up and create an account similar to how you would with any Web2 service that you're already familiar with. Um, and in the back end, we're spinning up a wallet for you that you can claim at any time. It is on blockchain. So these are assets. They are yours. Um, but it's not on you to take on the full self-custodial burden until you're ready. And some people may choose never to be. Um, but we're evaluating a lot of different approaches to that because while it's easy to say, and there are a bunch of companies who are focused on it exclusively. So we're not trying to build the solution. We're trying to find the right solution that will integrate into our stack. Um, it's, it's still not the easiest thing in the world. And there are a lot of trade-offs right now uh, in how you go about it. I bet. And, and the, the, obvious or maybe not so obvious question that that is being raised is security because for the mm -hmm. people who choose the non-custodial the assets need to go somewhere so where do they go and who's responsible for their for their security yeah, yeah. i will say since we aren't focused on financial services and DeFi, um it's a little bit different if you think about okay well loyalty points that are on chain the the risk potential is much lower. Um, that doesn't mean that we're taking it lightly, but it's just a different thing to be like, oh, my board ape was stolen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just lost yeah, six figures then. Oh, you know, I've got a hundred bucks worth of points <laughs> with this uh, merchant um, that I was going to use. And so I think the risk profile is very different. The attack vectors will be very different. Um, but it's all stuff that that we're, we're sorting through right now to try to create the best solution that manages customer experience with also individual ownership. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, one of the questions that I that I had that I was really excited to get into was um, your Essentially, there are going to be loyalty points, but they're going to be tokens. They're going to be uh, yeah. assets uh, that have value. And whenever uh, I've talked, whether in consulting gigs or, or whatever, when I've whenever I've talked to teams, I try to get them to stay away from fungible tokens as much as possible because it's it's so appealing. It's so like okay, in in fifteen days you could do an ICO, and in and in and in thirty you could have a token that is tradable. Um, and, and that people will buy and sell and that you can maybe, uh, sell some of as well. Like it's, it's just super appealing and, and everyone wants to kind of launch their token, but it's a really hard thing to pull off. It's, uh, quite stressful, but that's another question. How do you make sure that the economy built around the tokens that you're going to launch is there? How do you make sure that you're going to have tokens that don't just uh, maybe pump on the launch or not even pump and just like dump straight away and lose all of their value? Yeah, it's a great question because right now from the U.S. perspective, if you're launching a fungible token that is freely tradable, that has a market price that can be bought and sold, it is incredibly difficult to do that and feel certain that there is no regulatory risk associated with it, that the SEC won't come out and say that your token was a security. The idea of an ICO is completely gone, 
like selling a token um, to retail investors there. I would not advise anyone to do that unless they truly want (laughs) an action letter from the SEC. Um, But I think what we forget is tokens are programmable assets. The idea of it being like transferability and tradability is a spectrum. And we know a lot of tokens that are freely tradable, uh, meaning they can be, no one can restrict their use. They can be bought, they can be sold, they can be put on DEXs, they can be traded over the counter. And then we know from NFTs uh, that some NFT contracts are now being created with block lists attached to them, where the NFT can be bought, sold, traded, transferred, except for these specific addresses, right? And then we also know from some NFTs, the concept of soulbound tokens, where the token can't be transferred at all. Wherever it goes, it's staying in that wallet forever. There's a place in between soulbound token and block list are freely tradable, and it's called an allow list approach, which is where the token can only be sent or engage with contracts or addresses that are on a list. So instead of the block list where it can go anywhere except for these places, the allow list says it can only go to these places. And that's the approach that we think brands are going to use because what it looks like is, let's say I'm a member of Soho House, small flex. (laughs) I'm a member of Soho House. (laughs) I understand it. I've been once, loved it. It's great. And I live, I moved from New York to Nashville and I feel like it's the place where more of the, uh, let's call it tech forward, new Nashvillians go, as opposed to some of the country clubs where in that environment, that's just not, those aren't my people. They're great, but they're not my people. And so here in Nashville, you get all of these credits when you join Soho House because you have to pay a joining fee and they give it back to you as credits, which you can use at Soho House. Um, How awesome would it be if Soho House said, you know what, actually these credits are tokens um, and whenever you log into your app to see your credit balance, we'll list all the other places that you can use your credits. And maybe it's Lululemon, maybe it's Allbirds, maybe it's Cometeer, maybe it's XYZ, other direct-to-consumer brand that targets people in my age and demographic. And like that would be incredibly compelling to me. But what if Soho House had their own token, they could use an allow list approach so that you can't go and buy the Soho House token because it's not on their allow list that you can put the token on an exchange, on a DEX, which means that it can't be bought and sold. And rather, Soho House can unilaterally decide how it can be earned, and they can use it to incentivize really specific behaviors that tie to their business goals, such as acquiring customers. When you join, you get a 1,000 credits. Retaining customers. These credits are able to be used at Soho House, and you can come and basically get free value that you've already paid for. Engagement. Like, hey, you know what? If you come to 10 events within your first quarter, you're going to get 50 extra Soho House tokens, right? So they're encouraging acquisition, engagement, retention. But then you have all of these credits, these tokens, and they say not only can you use them within our in walled garden, but we're going to partner with other merchants and selectively say, now you can use it at these other merchants. And so that's where I think sometimes there's, it's lost in the discussion that fungible tokens don't have to be fully decentralized, tradable assets that can be bought and sold that will be subject to extreme hype and speculation. 
They can just be a business superpower that gives more optionality, that gives more ownership, that gives more voice, but isn't yet full on degen. <laughs> Again, blowing my mind. Yeah, it's, I, I, I'd never considered this. I'd never considered it because it's, Again, uh, Web3 native coming from a place where you can buy or sell your token anywhere. Uh, and, 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 but the, the way you're describing it, it's just all of the benefits of the tokens with none of the, none of the pressure. Because if you, if you can indeed pick uh, a framework in which they're used, it can be even more powerful. Yeah, because those companies can can decide which uh, other companies they their uh, their users or their members are going to uh, to interact with. All right, now you got my brain going. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's really fascinating. Uh, any any partnership with uh, Soho House? Uh, <laughs> coming in the, coming no, in but the I future. keep on using them as an example. I have an op-ed that's coming out in. Uh, Coindesk, and I use them as an example because I keep on using the brands that I want to see do this, and so I probably should try to get a connection at some point. Yeah, keep at it. They're they're bound to hear about you um, at some point. Um, there's one thing. How um, one of the things that I remember when we had that first conversation, and my girlfriend was in the background, and and after we we're done, she was like, "Oh, she she sounds so cool. Like I, I I like her," and and you have that you have that kindness. You have that really, I don't know. There's something very cool and something very special uh, about you. And being a woman who's not very, you're obviously very driven, but you don't um, seem pushy or you don't seem like you absolutely need to get your point across or that you absolutely need to see your opinion uh seen and respected and, and heard like you're seem very balanced how is it being a woman with those uh characteristics in a mostly male uh and very like masculine energy yank type of uh environment First off, I'm so glad this is recorded because I'm going to share this with my husband and be like, see, he says I'm not pushy. <laughs> hey, I, I, I only talk about what I see. I know that uh, we all present whatever we want to present to the world. So I, this is not a, I don't claim to know exactly who Terrafong is, but I, from what I've seen, this is what I, this is what I get. Yeah, no, I, uh, well, firstly, I really appreciate it. I think we're all a function of our like innate orientation, but also our environments. Um, and I was raised in a small town in the South, um, but I was also raised, that was a very traditional conservative environment where women were expected to have certain roles and to have certain ambitions and not have others. But I was also raised by a single mom who, while she personally held those beliefs, she didn't have the luxury of being able to demonstrate them because she needed to be the breadwinner. She needed to be the mechanic. She needed to be the person that did everything because she was a single mom. And so um, I think that juxtaposition is what gave me a lot of the confidence to say, actually, that that societal norm doesn't reflect my values or my interests. Um, but the Southern upbringing also gave me some level of 
maybe politeness <laughs> and warmth that I think uh, still holds true, even though uh, most of my accent has since passed or gone away. Yeah, um, I still have y'all. That's always my my giveaway. And people are like, oh, so wait, where are you from? Um, but I've worked in male-dominated environments my whole career. And in fact, I remember growing up, I often wanted to be hanging out with the guys. Like I went to a small school and we would break up our PE, our physical education classes into boys and girls. And me and one other girl would get pulled out of the girls softball to go play baseball with the boys. And I was like, I always wanted to be just as good and compete just as hard and run just as fast and try to be just as strong, which I never was, but I had some level of skill that, that tried to narrow the gap. And so I always felt this competitive, like, Oh, I can be just as good. Um, and that's held through, I think, in my career. I started out in German automotive. I was very commonly the only woman in the room. Um, I then went into financial <laughs> services. And now I'm in crypto. And so I'm not uncomfortable when I'm the only woman in the room. Um, and I will say that my experience overwhelmingly has also been very positive. There have been times when I've experienced some level of sexism, right? Or times when I've been ask things that I know a man wouldn't be asked. Um, but overall, I've had a very, very fortunate experience. And I've heard stories of other women and um, that they haven't had those similar experiences. So I know to count myself as lucky. Um, but I also think that there's a certain expectation that I try to bring to the table, which is I deserve to be here. And hopefully by presenting myself as such, you'll treat me that way, which is I've had returned more often than not. Yeah. It's, it's, I think you, you, you have a very strong point here. I, I, I will never be one to victim shame or anything. Uh, I, I do think that to any, um, interaction, social interaction with other people, there's, uh, there are two parties or more parties, but, that's one of the things uh, I've, I've talked a lot with my girlfriend, for example, of if you genuinely strongly believe that nothing's going to happen to you, it reduces the likeliness that something is going to happen to you. That applies to men. That applies to women. Uh, I've, I've lived in, a, uh, in, in, in neighborhoods that were not the most welcoming, but I always uh, walked the street with a huge smile on my face and like nothing would ever happen to me and nothing has ever happened to me. I've never got beat up or anything. And, and I do think that, um, doing the inner work as a woman of, you know, like dealing with that imposter syndrome, dealing with that, Hey, I actually belong here. This is actually my space. If I, if I, if I decide to, uh, is a, is a really good way to, um, is a really good way to go about it. But as a, as a more general, um, as a more general Thing, how how do you think we get more women to the space? Ooh, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, I am so encouraged by a lot of the organizations and communities that have cropped up in order to make this a more welcoming place for women. Um, and in general, other minorities, people of color, people from different backgrounds, 
Um, I think Boys Club, We Three, Eve Wealth, those are examples of three different organizations and communities that are focused on this. Um, I do think that, at least from a U.S. standpoint, women are taught to be more careful and not, uh, and they're trained to not step out of the norm more. And so given that societal expectation that a lot of us experience, opening up these avenues where people can learn in a safe environment, feel more comfortable, feel more confident, um, I think that's a great way to address both some of the norms that we experience, but also say, okay, this is a place where everyone can take part. And there's this sense of empowerment um, among, you know, a lot of women's groups right now where it's like, hey, if we want to be part of the conversation, that means that we have to proactively educate ourselves and take steps to become part of the conversation. And I'm encouraged in seeing that. Um, I think everyone can do something at, at co-create. We are really striving to be um, 50% um male and female. Um, and so that's where uh, we try to really target our hiring efforts to maintain a balance. We're never making a decision on one candidate versus another based on their gender identity, but we are being very conscious that as a composite, are we still representative of the groups that we want to be able to serve and also recognize that if we aren't a diverse team, we won't have as many diverse points of view and we can become more of an echo chamber. So I think it's both a good goal, but it's also business sense. Yeah, it is. It's when, when, when people start to get that, uh, things will change. Uh, but it's, it's, it's easy to say it's not easy to do. I, I like yeah. it's it's been a conscious understanding of mine for a long time, but I've also for a long time been quite ego driven because I was quite um, you know, like self-love issues and self-confidence issues. And so when when you have that, you try to surround yourself with people who are gonna say yes. And so even though you would like to have the most um um, balanced environment, you end up not having it. And even if you do have it, you end up not, uh, letting everything, um, everything uh, that should get across, get across. Thank you so much. Uh, I know that you have a meeting very soon, so I'm going to, I'm going to cut this short before, uh, I'll let you go. Who, what are you looking for at the moment? Who should reach out to you? How should they reach out to you, find you, follow what you're doing at co-create? Yeah. So um, anyone can follow me. My last name is Fung, which ended up being very fortunate. It's my married name. <laughs> and so I'm non-fung, non-fungible Tara, T-A-R-A on Twitter, which I just, I chuckle at every time. I think most people don't think it's that funny, but I get enjoyment out of it. It's so funny. feel free to follow along <laughs> with me there. Um, the other thing is if for anyone who is working at a brand that's thinking about new ways to grow, reward, and engage their community, but also give their audience, their consumers that um, more voice and ownership. We'd love to speak with you. Um, we go through a process to determine whether or not a brand is a good fit for us, given where we are, given their needs and expectations. Um, but they can also just DM me on Twitter um, and uh, we can take it from there. Awesome. 
Thank you so much. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure that this is uh, that this is the first episode. Thanks for coming on, and I'm sure there will be uh, more of these. I've loved it. Um, I'm so glad we got through the tech issues. And uh, happy holidays! I really enjoyed being here, Polymath. Thank you. Thank you so much.